Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. I'm thankful to be here. Uh, many of y'all have already said that you've been checking me out online. Well, I've been checking you out online as well. And uh, that was a lot better in person than online. So thank you, Kevin and Scott. I appreciate it so much. Choir, beautiful. I appreciate this opportunity. I hope what happens next is better in person and online as well. So if you can, I just want to, uh, we're going to turn in our Bibles in just a second. I'm thankful for this opportunity. I don't know if that's even the, the right way to put it. This is humbling. It's, um, it's an honor to be considered here as the senior pastor, Taylor's First Baptist. I I'm, I'm, want to express my thanks ultimately for each and every one of you and, and your encouragement, especially since you found out. And many of you, even before that, telling us how you've been praying for us for years. You just didn't know our names. And so we uh, appreciate the encouragement throughout. And I'm glad to find you here as I have come here this morning. I want to thank the pastor search team they were relentless um i don't know if uh many of you said you heard my sermon last week at my at my church and i i preached on the persistent widow well that's them in a nutshell and uh <laughs> they wore me down with their constant coming but no i'm 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 so grateful for them and their faithfulness the way they handled themselves and their confidence in the lord and trust in him gave me confidence. So I appreciate that for them. As the Bible says, you ought always to pray and uh, don't doubt. And that was uh, the stance they approached. And I appreciate that so much, guys. I, I thank Alan McWhite. Alan's a dear friend. I know, I know um, Brother Bo said that earlier. And I'm, I'm so thankful for him, especially through this process. He's been very kind to me and uh, even texted me this morning telling us he's He's praying for me and for us, so I really appreciate Alan. Um, this is an exciting day, but for a pastor, I just want to be honest, this is kind of weird. Um, I'm, I'm preaching, and then y'all are going to vote. So in some ways, it's like Inauguration Day and Election Day, all kind of wrapped up into one thing. And so I, I, I want to come and, and be able to preach uh, something that, that is inspiring and faithful, of course, and, and kind of set some sort of tone for what, who we are. At the same time, I just want to get through it. So um, as I heard from many pastors and friends this last week, um, so many texted me, called me, man, I can't believe this. This is incredible from around the state, from around the country, really, calling and talking, finding out what's going on. And, and as a pastor, you know kind of the awkwardness of preaching in view of a call. So they all said, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, Revelation 12. And it just went silent every single time. If it was, if I was face to face from them, they would just look at me kind of like, really? That's interesting. If it was on the phone, I would say, you still there? And so uh, <laughs> as we consider it, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 12. It's exactly what we're going to try to do this morning is preach uh, from God's word in the book of Revelation. I, I joked, I, uh, Brother Allen, when they all announced it, the candidate was coming two weeks ago. You remember he got up and said he was going to preach through Revelation verse by verse, but, you know, his time's run out, so I'm going to try that this morning. I'm going to try to 
this morning. So I'm going to be reading from Revelation 12, and I'm going to be really focusing in on verses 10 through 12. Revelation 12, 10 through 12. We'll look at the entire chapter as we begin, um, and, but I want to focus in on these verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12. Starting in verse 10, John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It's so good to us, Father, every day. I thank you, God, that you have not left us guessing what the truth is, or what you want from us, what you desire from us as your people, but you have spoken clearly to us. And so this morning, Father, as we come to your word, I ask, I beg, God, that you send your spirit here amongst us, that you would mold us and shape us into the image of your beloved Son, that we would claim the very victory that we have received in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in it, live in it, celebrate it, Father. For your glory and for your name, we are here. And God, may nothing else happen. May there be no glory for ourselves. May there be no glory for any man, but only the glory that belongs to you, Father, this morning. All for your name's sake, all for your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. To understand the book of Revelation, you kind of have to understand the whole Bible. Many people want to jump into this. But the book of Revelation really operates as tying Scripture together. It's, it's bringing the themes that the Word of God has. No other book in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament as much as Revelation. And when you add in the allusions and other things to the book of Revelation, it's, it's clear that this book is bringing together all the themes of Scripture, all the glory of it. And, and I'm going to go ahead and give you off the bat at the beginning what the book of Revelation is about. Summary, I want you to, you're going to understand it this morning, maybe for the first time. Jesus wins. And in the midst of this, that's exactly what we come to here. When we come to the book of Revelation, it's a testimony to show that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of his beloved son. And that the glory of the Lord is spreading across this world, covering as the waters cover the sea. And when we come to the book of Revelation chapter 12, we see a culmination of one of the great themes in all of Scripture. You remember in Genesis, in Genesis uh, you have the creation, everything was good and everything was right, and Adam and Eve were there in the garden. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the end of the good old days, by the way, because in Genesis chapter 3, sin came in, and with sin came cursing and came death. The consequences of sin were grave. And, and there in Genesis 3.15, you find the Lord cursing the serpent, the one who had deceived Adam and Eve. And in the Lord cursing the serpent in Genesis 3.15, what I would kind of call the, 
the um, thesis of all of Scripture, you have the first promise, the first gospel, if you will. For the Lord looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. For the rest of Scripture, we're looking for the one who is going to crush the serpent. We're looking for the one who's going to take the great disturber of God's peace and put him to death, kick him out the garden, and end his reign completely. We're constantly looking for that one. And as we run through the Old Testament, there are countless people who try to seemingly step into that spot, but over and over again, they fail. They cannot do what God's called them to do. They, they're weak. They're, they're unable to do and to finish the task until finally, ultimately, we get Christ. And there in Christ, we find the one who has come who will crush the head of the serpent for us. The fulfillment of the promise and in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12, that's exactly what we see. We see a description of this cosmic battle. This cosmic battle, the, the, the sun and the moon are involved. The stars are there. All of creation is involved in this. In verses 1 through 6, a great sign appeared in heaven, it says. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down like a, a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he may devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Ultimately, this, this passage is describing this great battle that all of Scripture is telling us about. And in, in Revelation there, Chapter 12, verse 5, it says, as this great serpent is standing there waiting for this weak uh, woman in the most vulnerable state possible to give birth, standing there waiting for the child to come out, to kill and crush the child. Why? Because the serpent knows the promise that the seed of the woman will crush him. The seed of the woman will end him. So he's trying to get a jump on it, right? He's going to wait there for this one to come out. And when, when this one comes out, something else happens. Instead of being able to devour him, it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. With a rod of iron. Now, clearly, this is again a, a, a pointing back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm talking about the one who would come, who would rule, who would be the son of God, and who would reign over all things. And in Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree, I'm going to make the nations your heritage. The nations will be your inheritance. And then in verse 9 of Psalm 2, it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here in Revelation, calling upon that, calling upon that, he's saying this one who was born is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the one who is gonna, who's going to reign over the nations, who's going to crush those who are his enemies with a rod of iron and end them completely. That's the one who was born. And as a serpent is waiting for him to devour him, we get this simple little line. As he's trying to get the jump on this one, we get this simple little line. 
but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This, as one commentator says, this being caught up to heaven seems to collapse the whole of the life of Jesus. From his ministry, his birth, to his ministry, to the cross, to the resurrection, so that we go straight from the birth in this passage to the ascension. And this idea here that while the serpent was waiting to crush him, instead the Lord protected him. And this child did exactly what this child was sent to do. He accomplished exactly what he was meant to accomplish. And when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was conquered. He was ended. While Satan tried to destroy him, Jesus won. And God turned what looked like defeat clearly into victory. For on the cross, the Son of God died for the sins of his people. There he crushed sin to death. There he put death to death, if you will. And now sin and death have no power, no sway. No authority in the life of those who are in Christ Jesus. And all of the tools of the devil, everything he has against us has been lost because Christ has conquered. Christ has conquered. And not only did he die for his people, conquering Satan, crushing his head there on the cross, but then on the third day he rose again. On the third day, he rose again. And when he rose again, this testimony now proves that everything he ever did was true and everything he ever said was right. It proves that he is truly the Son of God. He is truly the one who reigns. He is truly the serpent crusher who has come. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And his resurrection proves that. And the very reason we are here today on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, is because for centuries since that day, Christ's people have gathered together on the first day of the week to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. Every time we get together, it's a celebration of the fact that our Savior is alive. He's not dead. He's done everything for us. He's came to do, and now he reigns and he's alive. So we gather together this morning for that glorious purpose to sing and to celebrate and to worship and to hear the name of Christ proclaimed because he is alive. And we're no fools to do this. It's right. And it's true. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. He has won victory for us on the cross. He has risen again. And now Satan is defeated. He's defeated. And next in our passage, we see his eviction from heaven, if you will. Granted, I'm sure some of y'all, y'all are reading, he's going to preach from Revelation. What in, the, what in the world is this guy doing? You get this next verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, just to make it clear who this dragon was, who is called the devil and Satan. Once Satan is defeated... Once Satan is defeated, there's no place for him in heaven anymore. Now, think about this. Satan has already rebelled against God, but when you read the Old Testament, where does Satan appear? He appears in heaven. The book of Job, the first two chapters of Job, Satan comes before the Lord and appears before the Lord and says, give me your servant Job, let me have him. 
Even, even before the death of Christ on the cross and before uh, the resurrection, before his ultimate defeat there, remember what Jesus says to Peter. On the night he was betrayed, he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Satan was standing, and we see him there in heaven accusing the brothers, as it said, bringing accusation against God's people over and over and over again. But at the cross, Satan's defeat is sure. And when his defeat is sure, now there is no place for him in heaven. There's no place for his accusations. There's no place for him to bring up any charges against God's people. So the accuser has been cast out. He doesn't want to go peacefully, though. And Michael, who obviously in this passage is the great bouncer of heaven, right? He comes up and he says, it's time for you to go. And Satan and his demons begin to fight back and Michael wins, but not because of Michael's strength or Michael's power against Satan, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. Satan is defeated and he has no place there. And so he's kicked out of heaven. And remember what Jesus said when he speaks about the devil. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw him cast down. And now Satan has no basis for any accusation against God's people. Jesus has triumphed over him. He's been kicked out of heaven. He has no power. No accusations can be brought. He is done. He's been hurled down to the earth in our passage. He has no standing before God. No authority to bring accusation against God's people. God is not in any way in any way going to put up with it anymore for Christ has won. The devil has been defeated. But just as any defeated foe who's been kicked out, right, and his, his sphere of influence is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And while he had access to heaven before to accuse the brothers, he has that no more. He's been kicked down to earth. And as his sphere of influence gets more and more res restricted, not only is he wicked and evil, but he is frustrated He's mad. And, and our passage in Revelation 12 is telling us that he is, he's not just frustrated and mad, he's raging. He knows he's defeated. He knows he's lost. And as verse 12 tells us, he knows his time is short. So what is he doing? He's looking to destroy anybody and everybody he possibly can. He's looking to take down all of us with him if he can. That's what he's after. And not just all of it, especially, hear me when I say this, Satan is looking now to especially destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He's looking to especially take away the believers. There's nothing he finds more glory in is taking down someone who claimed Jesus. Casting them aside. And here, I believe is my main point for this morning. My main point in this. Christianity, and by nature, the work of the church is serious. Hear me when I say this. Christianity, and by nature, the work of the church is serious. And the Bible, I believe, is clear that the greatest battle going on today is the battle over the souls and lives of people. People who will spend an eternity in hell if it's not for the blood of Christ. People who will spend an eternity in hell if it's not for the church doing their job.
Satan is our great enemy. His practice is to steal, kill, and destroy. And our ultimate fight is not against government overreach or moral decline. Our ultimate fight is not ultimately over the loss of family values. Those are all collateral damage. They're all collateral damage of a war taking place over our eternal souls. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is what Paul says. He says to the Ephesians, I want you to understand that our battle is not each other. Our battle is not over ideals here and there around here. Our battle, our battle is against Satan and his minions completely. And they're looking to destroy us. And I would argue again that the battle seems to be intensifying in our culture, in our time. I would argue that the battle seems to be getting greater and more intense and more intense and more intense. And this is not surprising. For Satan is raging. And he's looking to destroy me. And he's looking to destroy you. Don't think you are not on his radar. Revelation 12 tells us something very, very important. Do not be afraid. Satan is defeated. And though he still rages, his time is short. And we can stand victorious as God's people in the name of Jesus. We can stand victorious and conquer Satan in his rage by following exactly what the Word of God tells us to do here. I tell our, my church all the time, and you probably will hear me say this. I don't want it to make you mad, so just listen to me. My job, my number one job, is to prepare each and every one of you to die. And to die well. Trusting in the one who's victorious knowing that death, as the old southern gospel song says, ain't no big deal, right? I have to say that's the old southern gospel song because Allison might correct my English if I say it over. That what we are about here is serious work. This is life and death. And Satan is looking to conquer. He's raging against us. So how do we face that? Listen to the words again of verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. These three things in this passage, brothers and sisters, are the non-negotiables of Christ's people. These are what we must hold on to. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Every whiff of victory over Satan Every whiff of victory over him has been secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I'm talking about this, I want to point out, as we as the church think about these things and understand these things, how do we conquer Satan? We conquer Satan by holding fast to the blood of Christ, being covered and washed in his blood. And that speaks to the exclusivity of Christ. A, a, a belief that we have that's clear in God's word that is not in vogue in the world today, right? 
the exclusivity of Christ. There is no other name. There is no other Savior. There is no other hope. There is no other one to look to. There is no other one who can save your soul and redeem you. There is no other one who's conquered death and conquered sin. There's no other one that can satisfy you and everything you ever longed for. Christ is it. He is all of it. He's every piece of it. And in Christ, he's never taxed. He's never waning. It's never like we're going to use him up. He is fresh and new every single morning. His mercies are great for us, right? His grace never runs out. It is amazing in and of itself. It is everything we can long for and everything we need in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has washed us clean when nothing else could wash us, when nothing else could cleanse us, when nothing else could satisfy. The blood of Christ has washed us clean. So we sing, oh, precious is the flow that makes as white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood. And as a church, we can never, ever lose this. No matter how the culture may look at us, no matter how they may think we are bigoted or we're arrogant or we're proud in this statement, we must say clearly and completely, it is only by the blood of Jesus that you can find life and salvation. No other place. Satan has no word against that. He has no power against that. He can't even sniff that at all. For Jesus himself has crushed death. He took sin, chewed it up, and spit it out. And he says it means nothing for you anymore. It has no power over you. As a church, we can never lose this. There is no other Savior. There is no other Savior. But not only that. Not only is there no other Savior, we also need to recognize that we are completely and utterly dependent upon Him. I look forward to being in heaven one day, amen? Gathered around the throne with other believers, looking there at the Lamb who was slain for me before the foundation of the world, celebrating with all the nations, as Revelation says, a number that's too great to count, gathered together in one voice. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. I look forward to that day, but as one old theologian said, while we're in heaven and we're all gathered there around the throne, let's just suppose for a minute Jesus had to step out. Let's just suppose for a minute that Jesus had to leave heaven for something, just for a moment, just for a second. His point was this, if Jesus had to leave heaven just for a second, then every single one of us would have to leave with him. Because we're only there and we're only in that place because of him and what he has done. Not only that, when we come to Revelation, I love how the fact that Revelation 5, one of my favorite passages John is weeping because there's no one great enough to open the scrolls, right? And he's weeping there. And the elder comes over and taps him in Revelation 5. And he says, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so John hears that this lion, referring back to Genesis 49, this lion has come and he's conquered. Weep no more, John. He has conquered. He's here. And when John opens up his eyes and wipes the tears from him and looks up, he doesn't see a lion standing there. What does he see? A lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And why is it every single time in Revelation when we look to the throne, we see a lamb? That's because for all of eternity, for all of eternity, every time we look to the throne, we will be reminded that we are only there because Jesus died for us. 
We'll be reminded that we're only there because he is our sacrifice and he is our savior and everything we have is come from him and we are utterly, completely dependent upon him. May we never, ever be ashamed of the blood. And the once we are, we have lost all power. And the raging Satan will easily destroy. But not only that, we conquer him by the word of our testimony. Now this doesn't just mean you give your personal testimony a lot. That's good. What he's saying here means that you speak of Christ and all he's done. That your life becomes a testimony of who God is. And that's not just in your actions, but even more here, I think, what he's saying ultimately is that it's in our words that we as a people must gossip the gospel, right? We must evangelize. We must spread that truth. Really, there's no other way for the gospel to go forward. There's no other way for light to spread, right? There's no other way for the advancement of it. We don't take the gospel by sword and press it upon others. We don't go in and fight as in a battle. We go with the one thing that we have, the proclamation of the blood of Christ. There's no other way to transform this dark world than by talking and proclaiming the light of Jesus. Uh, reading a passage of this and I came across this pastor who said he was asked a question one time. He was asked a question about what would a town look like if Satan was in complete control? And he said, what about you think? And the man said, well, it would be awful. It'd be terrible. There'd be graffiti everywhere. There'd be trash everywhere. There would be just a, a crime where you couldn't feel safe anywhere. The place would be awful. The town would be overrun with, with terrorists. And the pastor looked at him and said, I don't think that's the case. He said, if Satan was in charge of a town, I think it would be pristine. He said, I think every yard would be cut perfect. I think all of the fences would look nice. Everybody's house would be clean every week. We know Satan's not in charge of my house. Everything would look great. Everything would be perfect. Everything would be neatly manicured. And he said, I believe if Satan was in charge of a town, there would be a church on every corner. And every Sunday morning, that church would be packed. And every time people gather in that church, the name of Jesus would never be spoken. It would never be spoken. The point here is this, that Satan's not really concerned about us gathering in this room. Satan's not really concerned about how great our numbers are. Satan's not really concerned about how beautiful our buildings are. Although they're beautiful, and that's great. Satan's not really concerned about any of those things. What gets him, what he's concerned with most, is about the fact that we do not hesitate and we are not ashamed to proclaim Jesus from this pulpit. And no one ever will take that away from us. Whatever it may take, whatever it may do, every week, every time we're going to gather together and we're going to let each other know that it's Christ and it's only Christ, that it's Jesus and it's only Jesus. He's our hope. He is everything for us and we look to him for it all. The only satisfaction you can have in him and the blood of Christ can wash away your sins. And if that's true, then Satan has no power here. 
That's what he's terrified of. Every pastor, every believer must be about proclaiming the good news. The kingdom doesn't advance, as I said, by sword. It advances with the proclamation of the gospel again and again and again and again. And that's how a raging devil is defeated. Nothing he can do with that but run. But run. Finally, he says, we conquer him by the blood of the lamb. We conquer him by the word of our testimony. We conquer him when we are not afraid to die. The scripture is clear. For the believer, as I said, death is no big deal. Jesus tells us this. You trust in Jesus. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Paul puts it bluntly. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And for me, I know in my own walk, I, I came through life oftentimes fearful of death. Thinking, oh man, I've got so much to do. I've got so many things I want to do. I've got so many things to check off in my life. I'm not ready to go yet. And I understand that. We want to live for the Lord has put life inside us and we want that. But I also understand this. There is nothing in this world that the Lord could possibly give us that would bring us any more pleasure than himself. And were the whole realm of nature mine, right? That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In other words, my life and everything belongs to him. And the greatest treasure we have is Christ Jesus ourselves. And the greatest thing that can bring us the most satisfaction is seeing him face to face. I'm thankful for our older saints. My grandmother's 100. She's in the, she was in the nursing home, had to be put in because she hurt herself. And so she's been at home, but we haven't been able to see her for a COVID. And uh, finally, we had to transfer. So we had like two minutes to really kind of see her in the transfers. So we did, 100 years old. And she said, Josh, remember, you're preaching my funeral. And I'm ready to go. And there's no greater joy than to watch an older saint who looks death in the face and says, there's something better for me. And for us, for us here who are younger, who's learning for that, as we look at that, that testifies to how we're to live. We live knowing that the greatest treasure we have is Christ, and that can never be taken away. The greatest treasure we have is not our heartbeat. The Lord causes that to happen. The greatest treasure we have is not the breath in our lungs. The Lord fills those up every single time. And as Lottie Moon said, I am immortal until Jesus calls me home. And so it is for us. We live knowing that our life is in Christ's hands. We don't fear death because the moment we pass is the moment we're with him and so what can Satan do to a people that are not fearing death? What can Satan do to a people who are trusting only in the blood of Christ? What can he do to a people who are proclaiming his name in all boldness without reservation or hesitation? What can he do to this? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is absolutely nothing. You say, Josh, there's still suffering in there, yes. But know this truth that the trials of this world are only slight and momentary 
compared to what awaits the saints of God. Why? Because Christ is victorious. And in that we rejoice. The victory is ours. When we depend upon the blood and proclaim it boldly, when we understand and know that this world can't distract us with anything else, for while we believe in the sanctity of human life, of course, we also believe there's things worth dying for. And the truth of Jesus Christ is it. Never will we recant. Never will we turn away. Never will we deny it. For the moment we have, we've lost everything. In the church... The church, whether it's Taylor's First or Lake Murray, whoever it may be, their power is found not in the numbers, not in the financial records. Their power is found in the proclamation of the blood of Christ. The victory is ours. Now let's go get it. Let's live it for the glory of his name with all boldness with no distractions for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here, to hear from your word. God, you're good to us. You're good to us in giving us your word. You're good to us in sending us your son. And Father, may we as your people be utterly and completely dependent upon you every single moment. God, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. May we claim that blood, proclaim it for the glory of his name, and may we live every day seeking to do what matters 10,000 years from now. Thank you, Lord. In absolute dependence upon Christ, we pray. Amen.